Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. Morning, James. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm very well. Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just thinking there for a moment. We've seen an awful lot of each other since uh, since uh, March uh, 2020, haven't we? It's the continuation <laughs> of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> and your bookshelves have gradually evolved. What's the uh, plaque up above your head? Is that show? Oh, that show was because they very sweetly sent it to me, and then I had to do a lecture. Um, to all the all the, um, the the Sherwood Rangers fraternity on Zoom, so I thought, well, yeah. I better freaking get the plaque up, um, PDQ. Yeah. Uh, but actually, I rather <laughs> like it there. Um, you know, it's um, yeah, it's very nice. Yeah, it's very nice, and you know, sort of keeps me in the kind of military zone. <laughs> well, so um, James, who are we joined by today? Yeah, well, this, we're, we've got we've got a treat today. We're joined by Dan Ellen, who is the archivist for the International Bomber Command Centre Digital Archive which is part of the University of Lincoln. And it's a growing archive and centre for International Bomber Command. And the international bit is important because it's a reminder that it's not just British chaps who were caught up in RF Bomber Command, but it was a a Commonwealth and Dominion effort um, and beyond, of course. And they're doing really, really good and important work. And it's it's an absolutely fantastic centre. It's a fantastic museum as well. And Dan has done some pioneering work on... LMF, lack of moral fibre, which of course is this sort of terrible kind of stigma which has sort of sat with Bomber Command and those who conducted Bomber Command during the war. So, But he's done, you know, he's done some really proper research into this, so I'm very keen to hear what he's going to say. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me on. So, I mean, I've, I've read your article and, and I believe James has as well. Yep. And uh, I was... Um, well, I mean, uh, oh God, I hate the expression myth busting or whatever, but my eyes were opened wide by what you've discovered about LMF, what you've what you've gone to look for and then what in turn you've found. So could you summarise for the listeners, first of all, what LMF is and and secondly, well, and then go from there, really, because I don't, you know, spoilers. Yeah. And, and if we need you to pause, we'll put in a pause button at some point. Sure. But basically, the floor is yours. Okay. 40 minutes, go. Um, 
<laughs> right. Okay. I, well, I'll just read my paper. Um, so, in in March 1940, the RAF held a meeting to discuss what they were going to do with people who they had trained to fly and had flown some operations and decided that they'd had enough for whatever reason and didn't want to carry on flying again. And this is in the days in Bomber Command when, you know, the chop rate was really bad. Sometimes they were still flying daylight ops and, you know, there was... um... So it's not one in four at this point. It's considerably higher than that, isn't it? No, no. I mean, early on in the war, there was, you know, it was 50% chop rate. It was, you know, some squadrons and some operations. So they had this meeting and they came up with the term lack of moral fibre and it was a deterrent to try and persuade the chaps to keep flying. And it was in use in the RAF between 1940 and 1946 when the term stopped being used officially. But, of course, by then it passed through to sort of public knowledge and was had become this sort of cultural thing. So the stories that the veterans will tell you when you interview them and ask them about it is the story that they sort of picked up when they were training and when they were on operational stations. And the story goes that some chap says, I've had enough of this, I'm not flying anymore, I, you know, I volunteered to do this, I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for, I don't particularly like it, I want to stop. And the rules were you could volunteer to fly, you couldn't volunteer out again. Yeah. And if <laughs> you did... I mean, that, in the world of Catch-22, there is there is the RAF's Catch-22, isn't it? Or Bomber Command's Catch-22. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this was across all of the RAF, but uh, yeah, 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 I've I've looked at it mostly in, in bomber command, and the veterans will tell you the story of this humiliating parade, this ritualistic parade where the whole squadron, the whole station was formed up, and some poor uh, chap who decided he didn't want to do it anymore be marched to the centre of the square, his badges of rank and his brevet would be ripped from him, and he'd be marched away, never to be seen again, totally humiliated, to be sent to to the army or the coal mines or whatever. So that's the story. I wanted to see if I could find anything other than anecdotal evidence of this occurring. I mean, other people have looked at it before, but there's not a lot of sources out there. So people have looked at sources which are sort of on the periphery of this topic, but actually make it more confusing rather than clearer. So because this wasn't a very nice thing to do, nobody really wanted to get involved with it. I mean, there were official letters, uh, which have become known as the, the waverer letters, that sort of highlighted the procedure of what was meant to happen. But then these sort of have been open to interpretation and they were interpreted differently by different members of different offices on different stations. Um, and, you know, I can't see that it was consistent across time or any different stations. I mean, I've got to say that in all the conversations I've had with Bomber Command veterans, people do, you know, they have mentioned people being kicked off the station, but there's never been a parade. They just say, they've all said to me, you know, this guy was, you know, one minute he was there, the next minute he was whisked off and we never saw him again. But the, but it was mm-hmm. sort of, you know, in the night sometime, you know, one minute he was there, the next minute he wasn't. There was no kind of parade and ripping off of stripes and all that kind of stuff. No, it's usually it happened at another station or another squadron. And it's, you know, it's the rumour, mm. but the, the rumours are effective as the deterrent. For the deterrent to work, people have to know about it and... It's, it's like now and fake news. It doesn't matter if what you've heard is... It's true or not, yeah. It just has to, you know, it has to be plausible and it has to work. So, yeah, people did disappear. But they disappeared for lots of different reasons. And, you know, the rumour of them disappearing is what matters, really. When you do look into it, it's very, very tempting to start looking at medical sources. 
The letter itself is quite interesting because there were three, four different versions of the Waverer letter during the war and they changed the wording ever so slightly with each iteration. Really? Yeah. But there were three categories on the letter. So there's those who, though medically fit, forfeit the confidence of their COs without having been subjected to any flying stress, any, any exceptional flying stress. Those who were given a permit... So typically, who are those? I mean, those are just people who've, who've never really... So they're not people who've been on active missions or anything, operational missions? No, I mean, uh, again, the story is always, you know, this is a chap who disappeared from an operational station where majority of cases, I think, occurred at training units, so operational training units or heavy conversion units. Right. And these are the people who have had very little flying experience very little operational experience. So, you know, the first few ops of the tour, if indeed they are operational, who say, I've had enough, I don't want to fly anymore. And, you know, they might go to the CO or the medical officer. Right. And then there's those who were, after investigation, were found to have a medical reason not to fly. Again, the reading from the letter, um, those are given a permanent medical category solely on account of symptoms which are nervous in origin arising from inability to stand up to the strain of their duties without having been subjected to any flying stress. So the term that the the, the trick cyclists, the psychiatrists and the hospitals and NYDN centres look for was predisposition. So if you right. were predisposed to having a nervous breakdown or anxiety or hysteria or whatever, then you know that was a medical reason not to fly. And typically would that be would that be found out before you actually got to a squadron? No, not necessarily. I mean, the RAF and the Americans, during training, they, they tried to find the best people to fly. You know, they wanted the aircrew to be the cream or the crop. The Americans went about it by trying to choose the best. The RAF went about it by trying to get rid of the worst. But the results seemed to be pretty similar. Right. Because this sounds, these two categories sound like, basically, uh, uh, leeway for anyone you didn't spot during training who who... Who isn't going to be able to cope? I mean, because because LMF is presented as you know in the in, in I think in 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 accounts and in law, it's presented as sort of rather rather inhumane uh, and sort of needlessly tough way of dealing with people who've yeah. who've got combat fatigue. Mm-hmm. But this sounds like actually, you know what, that guy it's, he's probably not best suited to this, and maybe removing him from the squadron will do us more more good than. Harm, if you see what I mean, and actually, actually, what this is about is taking, you know, ironically taking care of people, rather than the, the LMF idea, which I think you'd get from accounts, veterans' accounts from the eighties and the nineties, which is which is the nasty old RAF that had no pity on the poor, poor broken man, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, there is a bit about that. I mean, the important thing is, is to all intents and purposes, although they are different, and one chap is LMF and one is medically downgraded or gets a medical discharge. There's not a lot of difference as far as anyone else is concerned. They both lose yeah. their rank. They both lose their wings. They're flying brave. Yeah. Um, but the distinction is one chap is LMF and one chap has got you know a, a medical reason why he's not flying. And that's why people have looked at the, the medical sources. And there was always conflict throughout the war between the medical services and you know, senior officers about whose responsibility it was. What, you know, what they did agree on is we need to get this person away from the rest of the squadron as quickly as possible because in similar ways as seeing it as, a, as an illness, they thought it was contagious. Yeah. 
Um, so if, if one, one chap breaks down, snaps, refuses to fly, it will spread amongst the rest of the squadron. And that's, we can't have that. And that's why the people were, you know, the people disappeared. But nobody really know, on the squadron really knew what happened to them. So then there became this fear of, you know, he's been posted away, he's gone to see the, the psychiatrist, the trick cyclist. Um, and then they became part of the myth as well. But, they, you know, the neuropsychiatric consultants in the, in the RAF were always trying to change the rules and say, this isn't our problem, this is an executive decision. Right. But the, yeah. dis- the decision had to be, you know, had to be made. It's, it's a subjective decision. Someone has to decide whether this chap has had flying, any flying stress. And flying stress is, you know, that wasn't a diagnosis. In the language of the time, it was, you know, he's had several shaky do's. Yeah, A shaky do could be anything to being hit by a flak or attacked by a fighter or a crash landing or whatever. Well, we, we, we live in an age of, of, of chronic hyperbole where we kind of put exclamation marks on absolutely everything and, you know, we, we, we kind of exaggerate all emotions at every available opportunity. You know, it's just exactly the opposite in, in, in the war years and, and this applies to everything. I mean, I've just been reading a book by a lady called Diana Holderness and she was recounting about, you know, being in London when, when the V1 started landing. And her mother, who was a society beauty um, and, and very well connected and all the rest of it, when the engines cut, I mean, she said to her to her daughter, you know, whatever happens, you must not run. You must not lie flat on the ground and you mustn't run to a shelter. You know, people like us don't do that. You know, in other words, <laughs> you know, stiff up a lip, buck up and get on with it. And... You know, I'm doing a whole load of work on this tank unit at the moment. And, you know, all the languages take that, you know, he's had a sticky time. Um, You know, he's had a shaky do exactly the same phrase, Dan. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people desperately trying not to, not to kind of, I don't know, sort of get too hysterical by what they think of it. But we are living in an age that's closer to the idea of hysteria, isn't it? Because after all, Freud isn't that recent, is a much more recent thing in the 1940s, isn't he? And those ideas about psychoanalysis and hysteria and all those sort of things are, are sort of a fresher to people. I mean, the other thing I was going to say is just just as it's an era of, um, uh, we live in an era of hyperbole, we also live in an era of flight safety of an, in an unparalleled <laughs> way co- compared, to, compared to the 1940s. Yeah, I mean, that I, you is know, true. The amount, how dangerous it was to get in an aircraft full stop. Because you, you say, Dan, you know, a, a, a shaky do like being attacked by a fighter or hit by flak, but all four engines failing or both your engines fa- or whatever or massive mechanical failure, which these, which these types of aircraft do suffer from and all that sort of thing as well. It's or, must or be getting lost or having well, bad yeah. weather. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it's bloody dangerous. But, but what I was <laughs> going to say is that I think, you know, the, the, the impression I get is that most medical officers on a station or indeed attached to a, a regiment or battalion or whatever, I think that they're, they're actually broadly pretty sympathetic. I mean, it's very interesting that in the Sherwood Rangers, for example, this tank unit I'm writing about, Dan, you know, the medical officer in consultation with the padre and the commanding officer and second in command, really are watching everyone very, very keenly. And the moment that they think someone is is too is is getting too nervy, they kind of switch their jobs or put them into an echelon job or or give them a rest or give them leave or put them in, you know, make them intelligence officer for a bit so that they're RHQ and not in the kind of front line in tanks for a little bit. You know, it's, it's those sort of things. And, and actually, there's a there's a kind of real nurturing 
presence of, of those those key individuals looking out for everybody. And that's the impression I get at the squadrons as well. You know, you, you see you know, most medical officers are humane. They're not they're not the kind of sort of evil nurse ratchet types by any stretch of the yeah. imagination. <laughs> I mean I mean that's that's true. I mean a lot depends on the medical officer. There's a couple of other things there. I mean everyone who's looked at lack of moral fibre has has looked at the work of a medical officer called David Stafford Clark who went on to be yes. a psychiatrist after the war. And he doesn't use he, that phrase, does he? No, uh, well, I mean, he he's happy for someone with his background and his knowledge to actually say, now that bloke is swinging the leg, that bloke is LMF, and this bloke's, you know, uh, he was he was quite happy to make those distinctions. Other medical officers, not so much, and they would send them down the line to to see a specialist. But what's what's interesting about that is there's there is an element of class to this as well. I mean, you're yes. talking about Freud. And the way that the medical officer, a good medical officer, yes, would try and observe the air crew. And there was a memo that went round at the start of the war telling them, you know, what signs to look out for, you know, changes in mood and smoking too much and drinking more than normal and these sorts of things. But of course, the medical officer was an officer. So he could spend a lot of time with the with officers in the mess, um, not so much with the NCOs, the, the other air crew. What, because he's just not allowed in the sergeant's mess? It's not the dumb thing? Not allowed in the sergeant's mess, didn't didn't mix with them socially, wouldn't have so much to do with them, wouldn't, right. wouldn't have enough time to spend to see the signs. But also, because there's this idea of class, and it, it follows on from, from Freud and hysteria and, and gender and these sorts of things. I mean, in the First World War, officers had anxiety and enlisted men had hysteria. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> It's the same sort of thing here as well. When they were looking for predisposition, they'd more likely find it in the chaps who were the air gunners and the wireless operators and the flight engineers, and not so much in the pilots, navigators and bomb aimers. And that even comes through in, in the few instances where we do actually have figures for this. You know, um, so what, so, so that, well, there, that, that leads, leads me on to that, the, my very next question. What are the figures for this? What, what, what rates are we looking at? Uh, and after all, you've already explained that the terms keep being redefined. There, there's some wriggle room in them anyway for station commanders to make their own decisions. You know, you're a medical case, you're an LMF case, whatever. Yeah, I mean, you're an officer, was... an officer or an NCO. There's all sorts of, there's lots of gradations and grey areas and sort of slippage in all of this. Yeah. So can the figures even reflect an accurate uh, uh uh, summation of of LMF or, or or how they dealt with this or or are the you know are the figures reliable and what are they? Well, the best ones we have are from some papers written by James Lawson, who was Wing Commander James Lawson, who they're held at um, the Air Historical Branch. It's a copy of the of, of a memorandum that he wrote, and he was the chap that took this whole uh, idea of lack of moral fibre and investigated, I think, almost every single case at the end of the war. He quotes that there were just over 4,000 cases submitted to be examined. 700 and something were officers and 3,000 and whatever were airmen. And just over half of these were classified as LMF. Almost 400 of these were officers and 2,300 and something were, were airmen. So um, That's about 3% then, isn't it? Yeah. But, I mean, that's the total air force. That's not bomber command. I mean, the problem that we have is it's, it's apples and pears. It's it's really hard to compare. There are a few other reports, but the figures seem to be about the same. And is that the balance of officers to men anyway in the in the makeup of the RAF? So, you know, that's not, that's, I've not done that. I should do that. That's a good <laughs> Because, so, you know, so what I'm asking is, are they, are they being tougher on the officers or tougher on the men proportionately? 
Yeah, that's work I've not done. Yeah, it's a, that is a very right, good point. Sorry. Now. Yeah, no, that's all right. <laughs> because because if you if class is part of this, you can you can see that. I mean, because after all, maybe the support structures for officers are better, so that so that or they're all looking after each other better in the officers' mess, or or in the you know, we, 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 aside for the medical officers, how the social structures within within uh, uh, any of those groups are operating and looking after each other, mm-hmm. you know, the camaraderie and all that sort of thing. Because after all, with fighter pilots, you do get this thing that there is this thing that you know you're having breakfast with someone and you and and uh, and he's not there at lunch, and 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 what. And on quite a high turnover sometimes, whereas bomber crews are, are going out on sorties on a more sort of, uh, it's a more deliberate, isn't it? Rather than you're sat on a station on, on scramble, ready to go all the time, are you? You know, you, you yeah, yeah, you sort of yeah. I mean, depending on when it was during the war, it was yeah, it was two, three a week maybe, and you you would do a tour in four to six months, depending on the time of year and and during what when during the war it was. I do remember talking to Rusty Warman, who I think was in mm-hmm. Hundred Squadron. Maybe. 101. 101 squadron, that's right. And I remember, and I think it was his engineer, he had a, he had a dodgy engineer when he first started. And his first three missions, you know, the engineer kept saying, we've got to turn back, we've got old problems, we've got all this sort of stuff, we've got to turn back. So he would turn back. And it was Rusty as commander of the, of the you know, as a skipper who got the shit. Uh, and, you know, he was he was threatened with a court-martial. He said, you know, do this one more time and you're going to be in, in, the, in the stew. And Rusty was thinking, well, it's not me that's the problem, it's, a, it's my engineer. And he was getting really pissed off, but at the same time, he didn't want to sort of dob him in. Land him in it. Mm-hmm. But then something happened, and the guy was just whisked off the station. And he got a new yeah. engineer, and everything was fine, and he had this, you know, and he became an absolute stalwart and, you know, survived his all his missions and blah, 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 and it was all fine. But, but you know, I mean, I think Rusty and the rest of the crew were absolutely delighted when this guy was whisked away, you know. I mean, the last thing yes, they but, was someone because but, he was yeah. compromising them. But, you know, he, he disappeared. They don't actually know what happened to him. And he, he would have been sent to uh, an NYDN, and not, not yet diagnosed neuropsychiatric centre at uh, the nearest RAF hospital. And they'd have checked him out medically and done lots of tests and tried to find out what was up yeah. with him and what, yeah, where, which then, category he should be in. And, but that's and, a reasonably reasonable response, isn't it? I mean... Yeah, and it was, it was effective. But, you know, I've also spoken to Rusty about this and we have an interview. I think we have two or three interviews with him in the archive. But I think he says, I don't know what happened to him. He just disappeared. Yeah. And there are lots of stories like that. And I was reading one the other day where one member of the crew absolutely lost it and was crying and running up and down the aircraft. I mean, that must be tricky to do, climbing over the, yeah. the main spar. But um, yeah. <laughs> they ended up sort of pinning him down and tying him to the crew bed. And he, he was whisked off by an ambulance. And But, but, and, but is there a case of, that we have to be sort of slightly careful about judging 1940s medical practices by the through the prism of today i mean i mean what, yeah, oh, what, what else could they have done i mean obviously you can't have someone who's lost the plot no running uh, a mock um, on, on a station can you because you know what, what what's the, what other way is there to deal with them i don't know really the thing is, is all these people who disappeared and then were sort of assessed and probably treated medically or given a medical discharge, all these people to the eyes of aircrew on the stations and, and indeed to lots of people who have been reading you know, memoirs and histories, they're all lumped together as if they were lack of moral fibre. There was another, another chap who broke down because he was a flight engineer. The aircraft was hit by flak and the bomb aimer was killed. He blacked out. He had a fit of hysterics, which, you know, I think lack of moral fiber is always sort of looked at through the lens of fear. And I think grief has got something to do with it as I'm well. I'm sure. 
And in you know this case, he blacked out and he woke up in hospital, and 100% a medical case, not lack of moral fibre at all. But he he was sent to Matlock and ended up receiving electroconvulsion therapy. I mean, they tried all sorts of weird and wonderful treatments for these sorts of things as well. But you know the the medical treatments were different then. But it's exactly as it is today. Everybody's sure that you know we're doing the best treatments we possibly can. And you know, 10, 15 years time, 20 years time, we'll have something totally different. Yeah. We've just got to take a short break. We'll be back in a tick. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We are talking to Dan Ellen about LMF and much else besides. Man disappears off station. Man goes to not yet diagnosed. Man, man is found that some rest of recuperation. He goes back into another squadron. That's not someone being busted out for LMF and we never saw him again. It's he gets he gets treated and reintegrated and goes goes somewhere else and is all right. And so, so, so do we know if anyone ever? I mean, the, the the thing we started with it, which is the parade, and the and the, did this did this ever happen, or is this a purely mythical event? Um, I think I think it did happen at a very very limited number of stations, probably quite early on in in the war. Um, yeah, and I think that was enough, really. To yeah, so it becomes this self sustaining sort of uh, uh, bit of f- folklore, if you want, within. With with an element with a with an element of truth, a grain of truth in it. After all, the 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 term exists bureaucratically, exists officially, but the practice doesn't necessarily. 
there's other things going on as well that are being it's being confused with mm-hmm. or it's bi- or it or, or that overlap yeah. as it were with it um and yet yeah i mean it, because i you know i've i've read you know all the middlebrook books for instance which are fantastic accounts and uh, 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 all of his books about bomber command which have lots of personal accounts in them i'm sure i've read about lmf in those books I'm sure I'm sure that it's a it's a cultural feature of being in bomber command yes. in the second world yeah. war. Yet yet it's much more slippery and uh sort of foggy than than that there was a parade these blokes got bumped off stage because after all you can you can be pulled off a, you can disappear off a crew for a, a multitude of reasons can't you that no one would ever know. Yeah, I mean a lot of my other works looking at ground personnel and their experiences and they were the chaps that really knew about the attrition rate because there's one chap I know about, he was on 44 Squadron for a couple of years, and one year he lost 10 aircraft and, you know, 10 crews. Um, whereas, you know... If oh, bloody hell. Yeah. 100, um, you know, 100, no, that's 70. 70, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. And, you know, they were never sure whether it was fighters or flak or perhaps even something they did. You know, did I did I tighten that last nut up properly? So... Yeah, sorry, digressing slightly. God, there. Well, no, 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 that's no, really, that's really so interesting. interesting. No, no one ever talks about that, do they? Yeah. That, that, that. I mean, obviously, the the crew are the focus of the dis- of when people talk about the stress and the strain and the bravery and the and the uh, the, the psychic um, effort that that goes into being uh, into manning bombers. But but I mean, if you've seen if you've seen ten crews come and go just like that, and as you say. Is it something I did? Did I did I tighten that nut up? Did I put enough glycol in the, you know? Yeah. Uh, they told me they had a problem with the number three engine and I couldn't find one and blah blah blah. Mm. That turned that that is even. God, I've I you know what I I I put my hand up. I've never even thought about uh-huh. that before. That no, is amazing. extraordinary. The Americans had these kind of um they had these sort of country houses where people could go and stay for a bit. You know, they'd, they'd suddenly say the whole crew is looking a bit windy. So they'd say, okay, right, you're now going to this country house outside Liverpool or in Bournemouth or something or Sussex. Mm-hmm. And and there'd be some country pile and they would just be waited on and, you know, looked after and told to kind of, sort of take it easy and have long night sleeps and, you know, fresh linen and all that kind of stuff. And after kind of a week or 10 days or something, they'd be expected to be back on the station and... You know, so there is this, this sense of the of the courage bank, and obviously your 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 bank of courage gets depleted. But there is a certain case is, is that you 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 can top it up a bit, but but with rest and recuperation and careful handling, yeah. you know, it's it's never going to be as high as it was originally. But but you can top it up a little bit and see you through your twenty five missions or thirty missions or whatever it is. Uh, and, and obviously, yeah. that's the incredibly good sense about having you know, two tours of duty in Bomber Command that you have your 30 and then you do your 20 and in between you might have a year off or six months mm. or whatever on, on a on a um, heavy conversion unit or OTU or whatever it might be. Um, you know, that, that that's obviously pretty sensible. I mean, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about, about you know, I remember doing a, a whole lot of stuff about... I mean, when I was in, when I did that brief foray out to, to to Helmand Province, you know, there was this whole thing about compression that afterwards you can't just sort of go straight back. You've got to have this compression period. So the compression stopover was Cyprus, and everyone would sort of go off and drink lots of beer and go to the beach and hire mopeds and you know all that kind of stuff. And this whole thing was considered really, really important as part of that. And that's that's something that wasn't really understood quite in the, in in the Second World War. But one of the things they did was they would 
sorry, the problem, the challenge facing crews is that you don't, you're not in sustained action. What you are is, is, is one minute you're in, you're going to the cinema, you're going down to the pub, everything's normal, you're seeing your girlfriend in Lincoln, you're kind of playing snooker with the boys, having a few beers, and the next minute you've got nine hours of just non-stop terror. And then it's back to normal again, and, you know, egg and bacon and beer and, you know, repeat. And you might have three yeah. days off, and then you've got to do it again. And one of the problems that does, that exacerbates stress and 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 you know, nerves and all the rest of it is this notion that that this constant juxtaposition between normality and then extreme terror. There's there's not a consistency. Whereas infantry guys, you know, you're in the front line, it's grim, it's horrible, but it's kind of sort of consistent. Even though you have these moments of leaving Florence or Paris or whatever it might be. Uh, and I think that's quite an interesting point. It's that, that juxtaposition of, of suddenly of kind of um sorry, that's my dog yawning. Um that sort of juxtaposition <laughs> between kind of moments of real extreme terror and then sudden normality again. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly right. The RAF did similar things because you know after so many ops they get a week's leave. The difference is there, you know, RAF crew could probably go home. Uh, you know, British people could go home. It's it's what what happened to the New Zealanders and the Australians and the Canadians, and you know that's when the the crew camaraderie comes in because they'd probably go and stay with another member of their crew. I don't know about you. I, I you mentioned this sort of bank of willpower that that you have, and yeah, you know, I, I think. I'm exactly the same. I can either give up chocolate or booze, but I can't give up both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Do you know what? I'm going through that exact same issue at the moment, Dan. That's so That's brilliant. Brilliant way, of, brilliant way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, because the, because the army do this whole thing of making sure people get sleep, don't they? Mm-hmm. If, you've, if your if your nerves going, they take you out the line, they and they deal with you in a forward area, don't they? And get 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 some basically give you tranquilizers and knock you out for a couple of days and try and get you literally literally rested and treat combat fatigue as fatigue yeah but this sort of on off thing is is very i know i'm still i know my mind's still racing about the crew yeah about the about the, these crews uh, you know the maintenance crews the the, the the irks is there is there an lmf for crew you know if you have lost 10 crews you know, up do people work? You know, working on the station. So I've, I can't cope with this because, like you say, LMF is as much to do with grief as it is to do with anything else. You know, if you've seen ten crews go, never, never to return. I mean, the, 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 that what what that must do to you. So is that? Well, also, you're seeing thing- crews come back and crash on landing. You know, because they've been shot up or whatever, and you're mm. and you're, and you're, you're having to help pick up. You know, bits of chopped up guy that that morning you were talking to on his way to the mission. Yeah, I mean, they they did, and it's another thing that I've, I've looked at before. So there was a chap at the hospital at RF Rawsby in Lincolnshire, a chap called Dewsbury, and he's, there's some wonderful papers that he's written in the National Archives, and he talks about inpatients and outpatients, both aircrew and ground crew, and he kind of compares the two. But yeah, ground personnel were, were sent to these centres for treatment and examination as well. But again, class comes into it because... They weren't perhaps treated as sympathetically as as air crew because, you know, well, you've not been shot at. Yeah. Yeah, they're not in the same apparent present danger. But I mean, the the the, the sort of trauma of it. I mean, nowadays we'd 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 definitely recognise that, wouldn't we? That 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 would be regarded as a yeah. as a, a a sort of clear and present stress on a 
on on an employee. I mean, if you you know if you, you think you think of I mean, you think, oh, the other thing is a world of difference between you know uh, employee legislation now. What you could ask <laughs> of the people that you know what I mean. What you can ask of the people that work for you these days. Yeah. And what what the, what I mean, I know this. I know the difference is there was a war on, but but you, you see you, you see what I mean is that that. You know, there'd be all sorts of protections in place, and you'd go see your manager and say, "I'm, I'm, I'm." I mean, after all, that well, that raises a question. Let's say you're beginning to think that you can't do it anymore, that you can't, and you're an air crew. What do you do? Do you do you go see your medical officer, or do you talk to your commanding officer? Because who? who I mean, and obviously it must differ from station to station. But you know, the cat's out the bag, and then they're worrying. About you know, you don't want to be busted for LMF and so well, on. Well, that's it. You're caught between a rock and a hard place. And, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they got through it because they were in a, a close-knit crew. In some places, yeah, they, they did have better medical officers or COs than others. I mean, the, the CO was within his rights to shorten a tour of ops <coughs> for people. Um, right. And that did happen in some stations. I mean, I've got to say, when I was doing all that work on Big Week, I, I would say of all the people, all the memoirs, interviews all the rest of it i would say 50 percent at some point during their first tour would would, would say right confess that they're getting windy that they're worrying that mm-hmm. they can't cope with it that they're gonna they're not gonna make it through and it's really really obvious particularly in the in um in the eighth air force which obviously is american rather than british that the concerns about morale in in eighth bomber command are really very very acute you know and they're they're very conscious that that you know they need to do. You can't just relentlessly send people over. You know that that to get destroyed and have the kind of Schweinfurt raid level um, uh, losses. That's just completely unsustainable. It's unsustainable on so many different levels, but but on a massive level of morale. So it, it it's something they're all kind of really aware of. And and my kind of it, my instinct and, and my understanding of this is that if you're if you're worried about yourself, you either internalize it and don't say anything. If you do say something you would go generally go and talk to you know a mate and say look i'm really worried i can't get through this or you go and talk to the medical officer and and you know increasingly as the war progresses the impression i get is that the medical officers are kind of on their side you know that they're, they're not as i say they're not nurse ratchets they're kind of you know they are simpatico people who are there specifically to look out for these people i mean you know, one of the most extra- you know, it's one of the reasons also is is why Guy Gibson is so extraordinary and why his effort, his performance on the Dams raid is so impressive because clearly he's absolutely struggling with combat fatigue as early as January 1943. Uh, and and he somehow manages to get through to the end of his 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 stretch as commander of 106 Squadron. And then eventually, is you know, and after that, he's told that he's going to have some time off. He's going to write this memoir. He's going to do some PR work for for Bomber Command and the RAF. And you know, he's looking forward to that rest. And that's when Ralph Cochran, who's the commander of a um, of um, Five Group, says to him, "You know, how about one more one more mission?" And you know, he's just heart is absolutely sinks at this, and he's just sort of thinking shrapnel, kind of you know, bomb damage, night fighters, and he sort of goes, "Well, you know, what is it?" And, and throughout the time that he's training for the dams raid, he he's he's no better. You know, it's it's not. This is not a kind of you know change as good as a rest by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he's in complete state. By the time he actually goes on the 
on the um, on the dam's raid. He's suffering from piles. The medical officer says to him, you know, I'm going to ground you. And he just laughs in his face and says, you can't ground me. I, You know, I have to do this. And somehow something deep within him manages to find the kind of strength to keep going and, and not only keep going, but command the the squadron over the on the dam's raid with, with just phenomenal skill and courage. But but he's absolutely fucked. I mean, you know, it, it's you know that is why he he deserves his VC because How because dare you speak of our war hero like that, Joe Collins. <laughs> but he is a great war hero because something yeah. the very depths of his soul he manages to kind of keep a hold of himself when it when it really matters, despite the fact that he's in inner turmoil mental turmoil at that point well that's the same for everybody i mean everyone else was going yeah. through that as well um and one of the ways that people talk about getting through it is you know they sort of already accept that they're already dead and then you know they don't don't worry about it it's going to happen to them at some point and well yes i mean that, that let, let's talk let's talk about that because the other thing is is um because we we spoke to um a guy called jonathan ware yesterday which it'll come out in another podcast for anyone listening um, not in sequence with this. Um, uh, so this may either, pre- you know, preempt or obvious. And he talks about one of the real problems of looking at the Normandy battle is the maths, simple numbers of how many accounts there are of what it's like to be an infantryman in Normandy. And there's, you know, per per a battalion with 800 men in, you might get one account. So that how you write history about about what it was like for the guy on the ground is extremely difficult mm-hmm. because there's a paucity of first-hand account. And this is before we get into, you know, historiographical um, sort of gravitational pull on on accounts um, as the war recedes and, and, you know, and history gets written. Because that's, after all, a thing that, you know, that you can see that terms appear in uh in accounts as the years pass because they've been in histories and people have been reading histories about what they've done because after all they've only got their own perspective of what they've done rather than overview and all that sort of stuff so what do we how much do we know about people's you know you talk about people deciding they're already dead what are what do we know about how people coped and and is there enough actually to create a picture yeah i mean you do have to be very careful i mean particularly with sources written or recorded after the war, because, as you say, they've been coloured by what they've read. And as I talked with my article, a lot of this is they're trying to get some sympathy for them because, you know, Bomber Command veterans thought they hadn't didn't have the recognition they needed. Yeah. There are sources out there. They are few and far between. I mean, in the IBCC Digital Archive, we've got some, we've got some wonderful letters uh, and some wonderful diaries. You do sometimes have to read between the lines. There's one chap who wrote a diary all through... He's training in Canada and he wrote letters home and told his mum about his girlfriend that he'd met over there and these sorts of things. And when he was writing letters during training, he was writing three or four pages um, and his diary entries were really quite descriptive and full of lots of information. When he got back to the UK uh, and on ops, he still carried on writing letters and he carried on writing his diary, but it got less and less and less and there's less and less detail in there. Um, and you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit. It, yeah, the, the, his last entries in his diary, all he's doing is recording the target and the bomb load. Whereas at the start of the tour, he's saying what the rather more what he was like. There's another set of letters that we have that are absolutely fantastic because lots of letters were written to wives or mothers or girlfriends, and it's it's 
you know, it's, it's like the, the letters that we see from the trenches in the First World War. It's, you know, don't worry about me, I'm in the pink sort of thing. Don't worry the folks at home. But we have one set of letters that's written by a chap. He was, he was I think he was the eighth man at 101 Squadron at Ludford Magna. So he was the, the German-speaking radio operator. And he writes a series of letters to an old work colleague. He used to work as a printer in London. And his letters are fantastic. One, because they're written in capital letters, so they're really easy to read. (laughs) (laughs) And two, because he's not sugarcoating any of this, he's not pulling any punches, he's saying what it was like. And when, you know, when he says it was... It, when when the CEO told him where they were going next, he nearly had a shit on the carpet, sort of thing. It's, uh... <laughs> so so it, it unvarnished, as it were. Yes. Uh, um, yeah. Because I mean, it's the thing we were talking about right at the start. You know, shaky do it, it can literally mean every, anything. <laughs> in the same that in the same way that don't worry about me, I'm in the pink. Yeah. Can mean can mean literally anything. Because after all, you don't know what they're saying when they. You know, you don't know what a guy's telling his family when he goes home, do you? You don't know what if he's sitting them down and saying, "This is what it's like." We don't know that. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we don't, we, we can never. I mean, obviously, this is the sort of we're into the unknowables of history that that, that there are blanks we can never fill in. Oh gosh, I, I, do you know what? I've just got to tell you about. I mean, I've just been doing this thing this morning. So this guy's got a. He's been told. First of all, he, he has to recce the night before to this river crossing. So he goes down past the German machine gun post, check whether it's possible to cross these tanks over this particular part of the river. Comes back and says, yes, it is. One hour later, he's woken up saying, actually, since you've wrecked it, you're not going to have to lead the crossing. <laughs> so he goes, OK, fine. When he gets down there in the morning, and they've got to be across at dawn, uh, when he gets down, there's loads of sappers there going, you can't come down here, there's loads of mines. And on the on the, on the the net, the kind of, you know, the, the squadron commander is going, you've got to get across that river now. And he's going, well, there's loads of sappers here, and they're telling me I can't cross. And he goes, well, you, we've got to get across. So he says, and I've got Jack on my back. Uh, when are you going to go across the river? So after a little while, I said to the troop, look, we'll have to risk it. Stay in my tracks and I'll lead. If I get blown up, you'll know that I've cleared the way for you. But stay absolutely in my tracks. So we went over line ahead and we went down to the river line ahead. And I went, that's a bit nerve-wracking, isn't it? And he said, well, better to face a chance of getting your front end blown off than getting a bollocking from Jack Holman. Probably chose the <laughs> former. Nah, that's one of those things. I mean, it was obviously paramount in commanding circles that we crossed. Crikey. So he does. And probably, gets, and probably gets blown up and, you know, wounded and that's him back for a bit. But, I mean... God. You know, there just... There is this... There is this sort of extraordinary kind of... You know, we all we all make fun of stiff upper lip, and, and you know, obviously the world is a much better place that we understand these things now. But it is it is incredible how that that worked, uh, and that that threat of being a social pariah as much as LMF, but then, keeps people but then, to yeah, do stuff. But the obverse of it is, or the reciprocal of that is, well, lots of wreck right, people 20, afterwards. 20, well, the twentieth twentieth century is the PTSD century. Yeah, our parents were raised by people with PTSD. Yes, who then who then raised us yeah. with the legacy. Of, you know, you could you could look at it the other way round. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm not saying it's the, right. I'm just saying it's it's it's, no, 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 it's, it's just, part it's very of that. Interesting. It's, it's a it's a it is so ingrained on that generation that there are. Of course, you, you 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 you're losing your nerve, and you know when you're losing your nerve. But there is this huge social pressure not to betray that, and and yeah, that I is just, clearly as strong as anything in deterring people I, from cracking up, even though they are. It worked as a deterrent. I've just got to pick you up, Al, along with a lot of other historians who study particularly uh, the history of medicine. 
it's really tricky. You have to be really careful sort of applying yes. diagnosis backwards. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, PTSD didn't exist as a thing until you know, 1980s and the yeah, yeah, DSM-3 yeah. came out. So uh, Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I know, I know I'm even saying, on even saying that, you're immediately lobbing a, a, an anachronistic diagnosis <laughs> back down the time tunnel. I mean, I'm, complete, I'm completely aware of that. And by the same token, their diagnoses don't apply now. So, because the whole thing's, a, you know, is a, a, sh- a shifting sand, mm. isn't it? Well, um, fascinating stuff. Though. There's so much, so much food for thought here. Um, Dan, thank you so much for talking to us today. I hope everyone's... Uh, uh, it, it, well, I don't know. Enjoyed this is the right word because <laughs> found it it's interesting. Like, I mean, heavens! I'm I'm just think, again. It's that it's thinking of the ground crew. You know, I've, I've never that's never occurred to me before. And you think, actually, what that must the horror of that where you're mm-hmm. well, a bunch of guys never come back. Yeah, and you're responsible for their aeroplane. Yeah, another time we talk more about that. I'd be very happy to do that. I wrote a PhD on that. So. Well, well, no, let's we'll okay, do, we'll that. Definitely do that. We'll do that another time. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks to Dan Allen for coming to talk to us. We'll see you all soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. Cheers. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.